seeing that first picture from the Event Horizon Telescope of the supermassive black hole at the heart of M87 was like one of the most amazing events in astronomy in recent years. And then we saw another one from the Milky Way at the heart of the Milky Way, two black hole event horizons. But unfortunately, that's it. That's the limit. That's as much as these as the Event Horizon Telescope can see without being able to go off planet and build a much larger telescope. We're kind of stuck. And not only that, but there are other features that are closer in to the black hole. There is the photon ring where light itself is being dragged around the black hole, orbiting it as if like a satellite was orbiting a black hole. But to be able to resolve the photon ring around the black holes that we've already seen is going to require like another order of magnitude in resolution to be able to see that. And so once again, you've got to go to space. Well, my guest today is Ben Hudson. He's a spacecraft systems engineer at Kispe Space. And he's been thinking about how do we get a radio telescope that can be part of the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration, but from space where you start to get a baseline that is big enough to give us that resolution. So we talk more practically about what it would take to be able to observe the photon ring around a black hole, what are the kinds of orbits that make sense to place a telescope like that, and what kind of actual technology would be required, like a giant radio dish, something smaller would be similar to a bunch of Christmas trees, like like the the 30 the square kilometer array, uh, you know, what is the right solution to that. So enjoy this conversation with Ben Hudson. Ben, what is a photon ring? So the photon ring is this is this region around the black hole where essentially photons that have approached the black hole, um, either from you know just the, the universe or from the accretion disk around the black hole, essentially get trapped in this semi-stable orbit. Um, so they, they don't go close enough to the black hole to fall into it, um, but they do pass close enough so that they're not going to fly straight by. Um, so essentially the photon rings are these these orbits that the photon itself will complete around the black hole. Um, and then we, we essentially classify the photon rings um, based on their, their order, n. And this is the number of, of half orbits that the photon has completed around this black hole. So uh, a photon ring of the first order would have completed a single half orbit before getting sort of projected back out, you know, towards the observer, towards us who's seen the photon ring. Um, a, a, the second order photon ring would have completed a full revolution before being um, for being projected back out into the universe. But how well does our under like I think about orbits and I think about say satellites orbiting Earth, but it's light, mm. and so th it's different. And so how well does thinking about orbits of matter compare to orbits of light around a black hole? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea. And obviously, we, everything we do around the Earth is very much based on a very simplified understanding of, of gravity. I um, mean, you know, like a Newtonian understanding of gravity, we don't really take into account, you know, Einstein, general relativity, physics. Um, but as soon as you're this close to something as massive as a black hole, the, the whole calculation is done based on general relativity. Um, so it, it's, it's a very different in the terms of calculation of, of these orbits um, as you approach something as, as as massive as a black hole. The environment around it, we can't make any of the simplifications that we make near the Earth for for you know normal normal matter. And I, I mean, I mean, when I am say seeing a gravitational lens, and I'm seeing the light that's being distorted by a mass that could contain a black hole. That is like the very beginning stages of what a photon ring might be because we're seeing the light being distorted by the mass of the black hole. And then it's just 
increasing amounts of shift. And so for you, is is it like it has to be going like halfway around the black hole before it really starts to pique your interest? Um, yeah. So essentially what we're seeing in the, you know, the Event Horizon Telescope images, the, the famous images of M87 star and the other and the supermassive black holes that, that the telescope is taking pictures of, um, is, is what we call a, the direct emission. Um, so this is, this is light sort of propagating directly from the material around the black hole. Um, and for us to, when we, when we talk about the photon rings, then yes, those are those, those are those photons that have done at least one half revolution of the black hole. And that's where we become really interested in being able to, you know, probe those structures. Um, as soon as they've completed at least one revolution, we're beginning to, or one half revolution, um, we're now talking about these, these photon ring structures, which have, you know, a number of interesting properties compared to that direct emission that we see in the Event Horizon Telescope images. And so if you were to compare, like, say you've got the actual, I mean, I, we always describe it as the event horizon is mm -hmm. that, that part, you know, the Schwarzschild radius, this, the, the, the surface of the black hole. And then you've got these different features as you move away from that, that point of no return. But then we're talking about the event horizon telescope, taking a picture of a black hole's event horizon. Mm -hmm. And now it all gets confusing again. So, so if you were to like start at the singularity and move outward, what are the the landmarks that you would experience as you break the laws of physics and escape the black hole? Yeah, sure. So we obviously have a singularity at the center of well, we presumably have a singularity at the center of a black hole. Obviously, everything happening inside the black hole is very much up for debate. Um, we cannot see inside of that of that region. Everything's very theoretical, but beyond that, within within that boundary, um, outside of the event horizon, we now have the the photon rings, um, and we're going to have the 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 higher order photon rings the closer we are. Um, so photons have completed more and more revolutions about the black hole before before falling in. And as we move away, we're getting to the low order photon rings. So n equals three, n equals two, n equals one. So the first order photon rings are photons that have completed just a single half revolution quickly around the black hole. Um, and then we're out to the accretion disk. Um, and the accretion disk is is matter that is is slowly falling into the black hole. So I think we often picture these uh, picture black holes as these you know. You know, all, all eating monsters that take in everything that's near, nearby, but it can actually be quite difficult for mass to fall into the black hole. You know, if something is close enough to it that it only feels, you know, a very weak gravitational force from it, or, you know, far weaker than required to physically pull it in, um, then it can take an awful long time for that matter to actually collapse into, you know, beyond the event horizon. So we get this big disk of, of plasma. It's essentially like, like a plasma material, which is all of the, the matter that is, has come close to the black hole and been, and been torn apart by the, you know, the gravitational tidal effects close to close to the body um, but this this plasma is 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 all that material getting close to the black hole there's massive friction in there um so we have huge um huge energy emission from that region you know in across a range of of wavelengths you know throughout throughout the spectrum um and that is really what we're seeing in the event horizon telescope images so this is when we go back to this idea of taking a picture of, of the shadow of the black hole so that, that that hole in the middle of you know the famous orange orange photo around the black around the black center and that really is the the emission from this accretion disk um so that's how we can find it. we're almost taking pictures of the black hole by by looking around it and, and seeing that seeing that um seeing that emission because you know we're not seeing anything directly emitted from the black hole itself in those images um so as we get to this accretion disk and that's sort of where i see the outermost interesting feature beyond that we're looking at matter that's coming into close orbit with the black hole um when you're talking about supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies uh, you, you'll even have whole star systems in orbit around the black hole but obviously much further away and that's actually how we came to come to, how we came to have the first um 
sort of evidence of, of black holes is, is seeing the motion of of whole star systems around the you know the supermassive black holes in the centre of galaxies. So that's sort of how I see the structure as, as we move out. Um, I'm obviously deliberately deliberately uh, avoiding discussing inside the event horizon too much because that's 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 quite a, a hot topic of discussion and one that no one can have much confidence in. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if we'll even talk about that. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. everybody wants to know, and yet there's yeah. almost no way to know. And so, no. you know, at a certain point, it just becomes random speculation. But I think what's really interesting is like when we think about those images from the Event Horizon Telescope, we see the, that really cool orange structure that is around the black hole and we see that it compares nicely matches the predictions made through general relativity that's Mm -hmm. very satisfying but in fact there's much there is this gap and so like i guess it all just depends on the mass of the black hole but just give Mm -hmm. a sense like say m87 we're looking at m87 and we when we see that shadow of the black hole how much closer is the photon ring to what we see in that picture it's a very good question. Yeah, um, I haven't got a fantastic answer for physical distances of how close, how much closer it is. Um, well, give me but, percentages, you know, or some, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the, the photon rings are extremely close to the event horizon um, because you know the, the, the gravitational force required to bend a photon is is you know a photon traveling at the speed of light obviously um, is immense. So the photon rings are extremely close to to the black hole itself, well well within the the accretion disk. Um, and obviously, very massively between between black holes. Um, yeah, I haven't got a great answer for right. Okay, okay, but it's how, like- how it scales as we get close to close to the body. Yeah, but I guess I'm I'm trying to get at like practically speaking, and this is sort of where you're looking mm. at is what's it going to take to resolve the photon ring. Sure. And and so you're looking at distances. You know that you're going to need something that can pick apart that gap between the accretion disk and the photon ring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at what the Event Horizon Telescope is is is, is capable of and what they've what they've demonstrated so far, um, so they they have achieved you know the finest angular resolution that has that has ever been achieved in astronomical observations. Now, of, of across across all the wavelengths of light that we observe in any of our space telescopes, the EHT has has, has achieved the finest resolution, um, and we're right down in the in the micro arc seconds of accuracy. And an arc second is a you know a fraction of a degree. So you start looking at the numbers, and it's it's an incredible achievement in terms of resolution just to get that fairly blurry picture, you know, um, which which has become so famous. Um, to begin to actually probe the structure of the photon rings, we're looking to go at an order of magnitude better than that. Um, so if the EHT was achieving 20 to 25 micro arc seconds, we, we want to aim to get down as low as one micro arc second, two micro arc second, to really get as close to, to get, us, get as close to probing the second order ring. Um, so that would be the sort of the limitation as we get down towards those levels of resolution. I, I know there's like, you know, they provide all of these sort of examples because like when you think micro arc second or mm. even just that whole process, right? Degrees, seconds, minutes, you are, you know, it's like the angular resolution on the sky. And so there's things yeah. like, and I, I'm trying to remember, I don't know if this is it, like, I described it as a person on the International Space Station holding like, a, it was like a half meter. Yeah. Like if you could see the astronaut on the International Space Station, then you would be able to see, you know, pick out their their body width 
from the ground, but maybe it's like smaller than that. I forget the exact resolution of the of the Event Horizon Telescope. It's just ludicrous. But the point being, you're trying to go ten times better, or is needed yeah. to go to see the photon ring. Yeah, ideally that would be that be what we need. I mean, just to give you an idea of the scale here. So the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, um, that operates at around a 0 0.05 arc second, so a, a 20th of a whole arc second. And we're talking about um, dividing an arc second into a million pieces um, and observing with 20 millionths of an arc second. Um, so right. to give, give a sense of the scale between these two systems, that's that's what's required to get these to get these these photos of these. Right. Of and these you backgrounds. want to see two. Two millions of an Arctic. The, the ideal scenario, if we could launch space-based systems, so I'm sure we'll get into this, is um, get, get, get going an order of magnitude better than that. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you so let's have move. to go into space to do that. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so let's talk about that. So the, you know, because using interferometry, astronomers hmm. were able to build a telescope the size of planet Earth, and they were yes. able to achieve that, say, 20 mil arc second resolution we're all out of planet. <laughs> we can't make it any bigger. So how do we make our telescope bigger? Sure. So resolution is dependent on only on only two things, essentially. And this, this goes for all telescopes. Um, it's, the, it's the wavelength you're observing at, and it's the physical size of your antenna. And that it's related to both of those things. So, in terms of in terms of the wavelength, we can increase, increase resolution by make, going by observing at shorter and shorter wavelengths. So we can do it that way. We can reduce our observational wavelength, and there's reasons why that's also difficult. We can get into, um, or we can make our telescope much much bigger, um, and that's the driving force behind having massive telescopes on the Earth is is that and and sensitivity of the system. So. Obviously, with V or BI, so very long baseline interferometry, which is the technique that the EHT uses, we have these antenna that are physically separated on the Earth, you know, absolutely you know, thousands, thousands of kilometers apart on opposite, opposite sides of the Earth. So we, we have a telescope, a virtual telescope that is the um, that is the diameter of the entire Earth. And we can get into how, the, how this practically works if you'd like to. But obviously, we are limited now because, like you said, the planet can't get any bigger. We can't get our antenna on the Earth any further apart. Um, so from, from that point of view, the obvious benefit of going into space is we are no longer limited by that problem. We can put them as far apart as we absolutely want to. There become other issues when, with doing that, but in theory, we can put them as far, as far apart as we want and get down to you know incredible levels of resolution. Um, the other massive benefit is when you're observing um, within the Earth's atmosphere, we can go up to around 350 gigahertz of observational frequency. Um, so getting down towards like less than a millimeter wavelength. And the EHT is approaching this, this boundary. Above that, um, just, um, absorption of, of the waves in, in the atmosphere and, and, and distortion due to that makes observation above that impossible. But again, if we go into space, we haven't got this atmospheric problem anymore. So we've removed those two, there's two big limitations on, on observing by, by having these systems in space. And then really, from a theoretical point of view, you have no limitation. It's more of a, your, your limitations then become technology and what we can practically, right. practically do from a, an electrical point of view. But I know like when you think about all the wavelengths, radio is the one that is most forgiving for observing from the surface of Earth. You can see through clouds, you can observe during the day, like the atmosphere isn't the same kind of issue as it is for other wavelengths. Mm -hmm. But for these kinds of observations, do you really feel like practically speaking, you do want to get back to space that the atmosphere is doing isn't doing any favors? Yeah, so I think radio is forgiving in that respect. You're right, and it's also forgiving. And the reason we use radio waves is is 
the, the technique of interferometry requires very accurate synchronization of our measurements. And as we get down to really short wavelengths, you know, shorter than radio, down towards you know, even optical, you know, vis visual, visual light and, and X-ray gamma and beyond, you know, as we decrease the wavelength, um, we can't record the data with the stability that we need to. So that's the first reason we're stuck with radio for VLBI for the time being. Um, but yeah, I think you absolutely do have to go into space. It's, it's, it's a physical limitation where we, we just, there will, there will be a, you know, a physical limit on our resolution um, because of those two effects combining, you know, the size of the earth and our atmospheric problems that, that just any technology, you know, no technological developments could, could overcome that. So let's talk about the baseline first. Hmm. What kind of baseline do you think is going to be necessary to achieve that to, uh, what's it milli arc second uh resolution sure yeah so it very much depends on the frequency that we observe at but if we observe at something close to sort of the eht's resolution uh, the eht's um, frequency we're looking at trying to achieve something of the order of like a hundred thousand kilometers so we're greatly increasing the the length of the baseline. Um, so if the Earth if the Earth's radius is around six thousand three hundred kilometers, something like that, then we're going you know at least ten times bigger than that with with our telescopes. Um, and a key part of, of VLBI um, is to achieve a varied baseline. So so the baseline is the distance between the two antenna for those who are not familiar, and to get um, good coverage of our source during observations we want to vary the length of that baseline as much as possible so so um ideally and and, and an orbiting system allows us to do this throughout the observations our two antenna our two, two space telescopes will, will the distance between them will change over time as we complete the observation because um, this allows us to sample a, a large range of sort of spatial scales and resolutions on the image so we, we can get um Good resolution of, of big structures in the source and and those really fine details that we want for things like the photon rings and um, so that's what we're really trying to achieve with with a space-based system is is that varied baseline which again is difficult on the earth because we're only the, the the change in the baseline on the earth is is limited by the rotation rate of the earth as well again which is something we cannot change but now, once we're in space we're moving at you know orbital velocity kilometers a second um and then we've got this massive variation over short periods of time which can be really really beneficial that's interesting. So like when I think about the very large array, they've got these giant radio telescopes in New Mexico that are on train tracks and they're mm. able to change the shape of the of the array depending on what kind of observation that they're they're trying to make. They want to bring them all tight in or they can sort of spread it out to make a larger effective antenna. Mm. And I would I would sort of always think about those the drifting in space to be a, a problem especially with interferometry because you want to keep those spacecraft you want to know where your two spacecraft are in relative to each other so that you can yeah. you can create your you know do your interference but but in this case you're seeing it as an advantage because it gives you different perspectives is there a orbit that you're thinking of so i've been looking into the sort of practical orbit configurations we could use to do this work. And I've looked at a, a different, a, a range of, of types of orbit essentially, because there's obviously when you select an orbit for a mission, there's there's more there's more factors than just the science you're trying to achieve. You know, that's from a from a from a physics point of view, that's that's would be our only driving factor. But you know, reality kicks in, and the spacecraft have to be able to operate in space. And there's a number of constraints this places on the orbit we can choose. So I've started looking at the kinds of orbits that would be feasible. You know, with with some technological technological development and some um, 
development in our, in our, in our space capabilities, th these would be feasible. So I looked at some combinations of, of, of Earth orbits, so operating out at sort of geostationary altitudes and beyond, but at high inclinations. Um, so there are a couple of um, configurations that work in, in that regime. Um, and then just to get a nice sort of distinct change to that, which has you know, an offer different advantages, disadvantages of the configuration. I've also looked at um, orbits around the Lagrange points. Um, so we're very familiar with the James Webb Space Telescope out at the L2, uh, out oh, at the L2 point. My um, audience is so familiar with Lagrange <laughs> points, it would blow your mind. Oh, yeah. that's good. That, 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 yeah, saves yeah, some, yeah. that saves some discussion, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like, are you thinking like L4, L4, like Earth, Moon, L4, L5? So I've stuck with looking at L2 for the time being. Um, L2 has a number of nice benefits for the same reason, basically, that James Webb picked it. Um, we have a similar- But Earth, Earth Sun L2. Earth Sun L2, and I okay. also looked at Earth Moon L2 to provide a nice a nice um, variation on on, the, on those two types as well, because that has another a number of advantages that you know an Earth orbit configuration or an L Earth Earth Sun L2 position would, wouldn't have. Um, Sun Earth L2 is, is 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 interesting. Same reasons as James Webb. James Webb, we have this constant sun position throughout observations, so we can keep you know use a large sun shield, and we have a far more stable thermal environment for the spacecraft out at L2 than you would have in Earth orbit. And the same applies for a VLBI radio telescope. Um, we're going to need to cool the receiver electronics on board down to incredibly low temperatures. And in fact, the higher frequency we go in observations, you know, the shorter wavelength we use in observations, the colder the receiver will have to get. Um, so there's a massive benefit from being that far away from the sun with a constant sun position. So you can use a sun shield to, to get that down. Um, so that's pretty, pretty similar, you know, James Webb's driver for being that far away um, and, and a lot of other space telescopes at that position. But then we have other problems with VLBI, which James Webb does not have to the same extent. The, 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 the amount of data we need to record during observations is absolutely massive. Um, so the EHT, to give you, a, you know, a sense of how much data we're talking about, caused terabytes of data um, every day. And I think it's a, it's a story, story that went around a lot during during the uh, release of the first image. They, they they physically ship the the data storage by post to the correlation center because it's just not feasible to send it over the internet. So that's how much data we're talking about, um, which is fine on the Earth because you can just, you know, we can just ship the memory storage across across the Earth to the correlation center to, you know, to process the data. But when we're in space, we've got to downlink that data, you know, via some sort of by some sort of link to a ground station. Um, so being miles away at L2 makes that incredibly difficult. You know, the further away from the Earth we get, the much lower data rates we're going to achieve. Um, so there are benefits in trying to achieve, trying to um, achieve this varying baseline effect near the Earth if we can. And that's the sort of trade-off you have to make when you're designing spacecraft is, is, is get an understanding of, of how those things are going to affect things like the things, things like the downlink rate and you know your power generation and your thermal control. Um, so I've looked at a big range of, of orbit configurations essentially just to provide us with a number of options going forward as, we, as we're in the early phases of this sort of concept development. And so you need a place that is at least 100,000 kilometers away from earth and mm. so that rules out say geostationary orbit but you don't want to be too far away because then it severely decreases your your bandwidth home to send all this data back home and yeah, yeah I, I remember like the stories of them having to wait until winter in antarctica was over so that they could put all the hard drives on the airplane yeah. and fly like they took the data but nobody could look at it because they needed to wait another couple of months before they could actually fly the hard drives out with an airplane and that limitation is gigantic. And people mm. don't even realize, like when New Horizons hit Pluto, went past Pluto, it took six, you know, 18 months to get the data home because yeah. the, bit, the bit rate was so slow. Um, and so do you, 
do you like right now? Is it is it more about high bandwidth or is it more about longer baseline? Like where are you yeah. leaning? I think if we're talking practically about you know the difficulties of implementing this kind of system, um, the data handling is the biggest problem. And there are a number of problems. Um, thermal control is one, but that is something we're quite used to with our telescopes. We've, we've managed to cool down electronics on, on, a, on a range of systems to very low temperatures using like cryogenic techniques. So that's fairly manageable, I think, with you know no doubt advanced equipment, but stuff we've done before. Um, the data handling is, is something we haven't done to this extent in space before, not not this level of, of data storage. And, and, creation, and building sort of radiation tolerant memory systems to store that data, again, very doable, but it is that downlink of that data back to earth becomes very hard indeed and something that we can't just overcome with um technology development necessarily because we are approaching you know physical limitations of what we can do with antennas um so i think there will be a desire to go as far away from the earth as possible from a thermal point of view and from getting the biggest baseline you can but the biggest restriction we're going to see is this ability to actually ha actually handle the data um and but we have some ideas as to how we could how we could cope with with that problem going so forward. i mean like earth earth moon l1 hmm. gives you the distance and keeps you reasonably close but requires a certain amount of you know more i guess more heat blocking hmm. than being out at l2 that's interesting it's um and you, and right now you clearly don't have one solution that is scream like obviously at like a million people are going to say the far side of the moon yeah so what do you think about the far side of the moon as a, as a choice the far side of the moon is a good choice, um, and that is one I have looked at. So, like a, an Earth Moon L two position. So, still in orbit, but we're now. But past. not on the surface. Not on the surface. No, I, I'm still. I'm still thinking about staying in orbit because that does give us this rapid variation that I was talking about earlier with the baseline. Um, there are some proposals though for radio telescopes on the far side of the moon, which are which are really interesting, which are worth people looking up. There's um, proposals for using craters on the far side of the moon for radio telescopes, um, which is in, yeah. Interesting idea. But yeah, if we look at the Earth-Moon L2 points, it's still in orbit, but at that far side, um, we're sort of combining the benefits of those two other configurations. So we're combining the being, you know, being feasible, being sort of close to the Earth, but also far enough away so that the thermal effects of that become a bit, a bit more negligible. Um, so it's a nice middle ground, and that's why I included it in my, in my study. Um, it, yeah. it sort of provides the benefits of both, um, and it is something that's a hot topic at the moment because you know lots of the um, Lunar missions are discussing going to very similar orbits that I proposed in my paper. So near it, linear. And there's orbits. a need for a relay on the far side of the moon to communicate with lunar exploration. So absolutely, yeah, it's an interesting idea with how many missions are going there. Whether what you know, it's maybe something could be made use of in a VOBI way that's already going to to that position. That's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But that you you know, it's not primarily like the Chinese Chuiqiao. Uh, uh, relay satellite did that so they mm. had a dutch astron experiment on board that was doing um like sub millimeter observations yeah. of the universe at the same time that the the spacecraft was acting as a relay for earth and so it'd be yeah. interesting to sort of see if you can sort of partner up with that so yeah. this leads then into the second part of of really this question we've talked about about what how big and where's a, where's a good place to put it and the question is to what is it so what are you thinking is the right kind of machine what kind of instrument are you you know do you expect it's going to be 
Sure. So we're talking about a fairly large radio telescope. So this is a big deployable antenna. So similar to the parabolic antennas you see on the ground, um, but we're, we're talking about something of, of that of that nature. Um, another big problem of, of EOBI is sensitivity. So although we have this you know, virtual telescope the size of the Earth or even bigger, obviously we don't really have a telescope that big. So we're not collecting data across such a large area. We've got this massive baseline, but only collecting of these tiny areas of antenna. So getting the antenna as big as we can is, 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 is important as well. Um, so ideally, and, the, and the, the, the sort of values I looked at in my work is a deployable antenna of 10 to 15 meters in diameter. So a large deployable, um, something we have done before to that size, um, but there are some interesting difficulties from an engineering perspective to um, building a, a telescope that large and, and keeping the surface accuracy high enough for um, sort of high frequency observations. So we're talking about a 10 to 50 meter deployable antenna system. Uh, straight away, we have a very large spacecraft because of that, you know, we're talking about a, a, a pretty um, high level NASA or ESA, you know, space agency proposal to, to do such a mission. Um, very likely, a sun shield of some description. Um, as I said, we need to call down the receiver electronics to sometimes very close to absolute zero. So I think that'd be very difficult without a sun shield in any of the configurations I've just described. So you could picture a, a James Webb-like sun shield. Imagine this concept. And instead of James Webb's nice gold mirrors, um, a big parabolic deployable antenna is what we'd be using for this. Um, and then obviously the key thing for this mission is we're not talking about a single telescope. We're talking about at least two. Um, which then, you know, increases the, the size, the scope of the project, the scope of the mission, the, the cost. Um, but to do VLBI, we need at least two systems because that's, you know, of course, the whole point. And, and the more, the better. Um, right. you get so you can't get coverage. by with just one and use the Earth as the other side of the baseline. So you absolutely could do that. That is absolutely true. So, and missions have done already. So there's been a couple of um, VLBI space missions um, to date. Uh, radio, you mentioned the Astron. Um, yeah, there was a Russian one, Chinese. right? There was, yes. Yeah, so a Radio Astron um, was on the Spectre R spacecraft, right? Um, sort of 2010 time, I think, um, and they were doing ground to space VLBI. So that's that's great for getting massive baseline, but you're still limited by that frequency that I mentioned by observing on the Earth. So you have to stick to that because obviously your ground stations can't observe any higher than that. So you can absolutely do that. We could launch a single telescope um, and observe in collaboration with the EHT and and other arrays, um, which has massive benefits because we've got huge number of telescopes now um but then you do have this limit on the frequency again but um but it, actually most of the sort of feasible concepts we're looking at at the moment are, 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 are aimed towards that kind of system from the point of view of money cost um and the fact that the eht is already in operation so you know adding on to the eht is a, is, a, is a simpler idea now does the sun shield have to block the entire um dish or does it just have to block the electronics the, the receiver electronics are the key thing. So the antenna antenna surface would have to be kept to uh, some reasonable temperature. Um, I haven't got a good number for that at the moment, but there would have to be some sort of control of the, of the, of the surface itself. But the receiver electronics need other thing that needs to be down close to, um, well, a few Kelvin, if you're, if you're observing up at some of the really high frequencies that I've, I've analyzed. Um, so I'm just wondering whether you could have like a small sun shield that just keeps the the core electronics, but then the rest of the dish is is in sunlight. Or are yeah. you going to have to deploy a sun shield that is big enough to protect the entire dish and all of the electronics? Because that's a taller order, right? Like it, I know absolutely. with with Web that sun shield was a headache yeah. of the highest order, and 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 so to go, well, I like that, but now I need it one that can be. 
the size of a football mm. pitch, not yeah. a tennis court, uh, you're going to have a lot of engineers go, are you sure this is what you need? Yeah, and absolutely. I think the general rule you can always assume with, with spacecraft engineers is we try and stop things moving as much as possible. So if something on board the spacecraft is going to have to move, it only, it's only going to be there if it absolutely needs to be. It's only deployables, anything like that. We, you know, you're going to try and minimize those as much as possible because they are areas of high risk of failure, as we've seen on lots of missions before. And like you said, the complications with the James Webb telescope and the moving parts, it, the complexity was, was incredible. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting point. And one I think we, one of them think we need to do more analysis around as to the size of sunshield that would be required. Um, like, is there a trade-off, right? Like, is there a trade-off for like just a bigger, just a bigger antenna? Like if you mm. like no sunshield, but it's a 20 meter antenna, no sunshield, but it's a 40 meter antenna. Mm. Like, I wonder, does that get you back to what you need without having to keep the whole or or is there just enough cooling very specific parts of the of the telescope? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the, the limiting problem would be the frequency you want to observe at. So if you if you're if you're happy for your receiver and, and other electronics to be a higher temperature, then you're just going to limit how high a frequency you can observe at. So it, it, it will come down that way. So there's absolutely a trade-off there. And as you said, you can increase antenna, antenna diameter and, and make up some of the difference that way as well. Um, but there's certainly more thermal analysis required to properly determine what, what a mission like this would need. Um, and I think it's an, it's an interesting part of this because most people working on these concepts are, are physicists. Um, and obviously that is absolutely necessary from the scientific point of view. But there is certainly this jump to then reality of what we can feasibly achieve with such missions um, from, you know, from an engineering perspective that you need to make. And I think we're in the process, with, with the groups I work with, we're in the process of making that jump to, okay, how do we really do this now? Um, what do we really need to be able to develop over the next you know, five to 10 years to make this feasible? So that, 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 I think that realis- realization is, 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 is currently dawning um, and then those discussions are starting to be had. I mean, there's some really interesting technologies being developed in 3D printing where people mm. are proposing building struts and structural elements and even radio dishes, you know, in place. Like, have you looked into any of that at all? Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't looked into 3D printing in orbit as of yet. But what I have been considering is the fact that um, obviously Hot Topic, SpaceX's Starship, some of the capabilities that's going to provide us for transfer of mass to to um, you know Earth orbit and beyond, and, and also the size of payload that, that the Starship can can transport, and and that's going to take us well beyond sort of the fairing sizes we've previously seen on on our launch vehicles. Um, so from the point of view of a deployable structure that originally would have been limited by the size of the fairing, or that would be one of the limitations. I can see how we can be, begin to move on, move move beyond those limitations with something like Starship, um, where we have these you know potentially massive deployable structures because of the large fairing size. So I think that's a really interesting thing to consider, um, and I think something that will dawn on people more as as obviously their launches become more frequent and more successful. I mean, I think the thing that's really great about radio is that it is more forgiving. So mm. you don't need to reach the kinds of tolerances with your dish that they had with James Webb. No, true. And so if you're going to try to build things in space, assemble them in space, unfold them in space, you don't have to be as careful as they had no. to be with with Webb. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, although we do need a certain level of, obviously we need a certain level of accuracy in our deployable, it is not of that order, you're right. Um, deployable structures are, as, as Webb shown, particularly parabolic antennas to deploy, are tricky to deploy to the accuracy you, you need for these higher frequency observations. So that is one challenge that 
you know, a lot of groups are kind of looking into is what can we feasibly do right now with our antenna manufacturer for a deployable system. Um, there's a number of, there's, 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 an, there's an alternative to that. In fact, there's, we could use almost a phased array system. So where you, you essentially have uh, a number of antennas on the same spacecraft rather than one single parabolic dish. Um, and then the accuracy of their positioning is not so, is not so key because you could actually tune their, um, and, and calibrate their, their, their contributions to a, you know, to a single receiver. Um, by, by performing calibration exercises. So that's one, one thing that's being considered to get around the antenna manufacturer problem. But you're right, it's, it's not, we're not down at the level required for the James Webb deployment, which is again, you know, why we use, one of the reasons we do use radio waves for this. I mean, one of the long-term goals is a space-based interferometer. And like mm. the only practical one that's in motion right now is LISA, which is gonna be doing gravitational waves. And they're back to requiring incredibly tight tolerances. And when you look at the timelines on Lisa, it's like 2035. Like it's, mm -hmm. although it's getting surprisingly quick when I think about how long we've been watching this mission. Um, <laughs> you know, it's only 12 years away now. Um, yeah. But like it feels like the place to begin learning to run an interferometer is with the most forgiving wavelength. And that's radio. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, and it's the it's the key challenge of VLBI, which does force us into this radio radio world. Like I said, we need to when our two antennas are observing the the source, we need to synchronize the recording of those signals as accurately as you possibly can. So on the ground, the EHT um, each station has an atomic clock, um, so that's that's required. So on board the spacecraft, you would almost certainly need an atomic clock. So that's again another level of complexity that most most space telescopes don't have. Um, so that atomic clock is required to get that stability of the sampling of the signal. Um, and then in addition to that, we need to synchronize the measurements between those two telescopes. And, and the EHT uses GPS to do that, um, which provides a very stable you know, um, pulse from which they can both synchronize their clocks during observations. Um, this is you know, why we use radio, is, is, is if we were going to higher frequencies, um, shorter wavelengths, to get that stability of measurement and synchronize the measurements such that you could correlate the data and get anything useful out of it once you've completed your observation. We're not at a point where we can do that with, with wavelengths shorter than, than radio waves. So that's why VLBI inherently uses is, is radio. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a limitation of technology, essentially, and a, and a limitation of, of timing that we can achieve. Um, but all these things I've described on the ground are things that we need to somehow find solutions for if we want a space-based system as well. So this is where the biggest challenges come, is trying to translate the things EHT does to a space-based you know, you know, maybe one or two spacecraft, but you have to try and overcome these problems that the EHT is, you know, fairly drastic, fairly drastic solutions to. Right, but at least you don't have to try and figure out real-time interferometry the way any other wavelength would have to do it. Like you True. at least get to have an atomic clock, each telescope records its own version, and then you just send it later and let a computer mash it together. Yeah. And you just, you can't do that with any other wavelength. No, that's true. And, and our, our challenge then becomes how can we, how can we make that correlation process easier? Because it's a mass, it's a, it's a highly computationally expensive process and takes an awful long period of time, incredibly powerful computers to do that. And, you know, that's been the limitation of your for a long time is actual processing power. Um, so we don't have that limitation. You're right. But we have the limitation of actually sampling our data in such a way that we can actually correlate it in the end. And this is a problem that past space missions have had. So Radio Astron that we discussed, they, um, you know, they, they collect loads of data, they can record lots of data, but actually, and get it back, and they got it back to the Earth okay as well. When actually come to correlate that data, 
and and find what we call fringes. So, so essentially lining up the waves from our different antennas so we get this this you know interference pattern that we can use. Um, that's incredibly difficult because you're searching in a range of sort of parameter spaces to try and find that detection. So it's not only time, you're trying to find the, you know, the, the exact time that both antenna observe the same signal. You're also trying to figure out in space um, where, where they were when they received that signal as well. So you're searching across all these parameters to find that interference pattern. Um, and, and the, the ESG does this, took a long period of time, to, you know, it takes weeks to collate data. We have to try and make that process practical and, and short with a space-based system, and that, that that imposes most of the requirements we have on on technology and the things that the space-based telescopes will have to do. So that's our that's our difficulty compared to the other interferometers is is yeah. is, is the wealth of data and and, and the and the um, correlation. Is there is there like a hybrid approach? Like, is there a way to keep the thinking on the spacecraft as opposed to having mm. to bring it home? Yeah, it's an interesting idea, and one we've started to think about. So. In-orbit correlation would be a, a, an amazing thing. Um, if we could keep all the data up there, we, we, we remove our problem of getting it back down to Earth. Um, just send the picture, send the pretty picture. Yeah, right? exactly. Ideally, you just send, send the picture down, you know, send, send the graph down we want to analyze to get our photon ring measurements or whatever. Um, we, have a, we have, again, challenges. We, it, it would involve flying computational power that we haven't ever flown before. Um, it would involve the two telescopes having to send the data between themselves or one sending the data to the other. So at some point we need we still need to transfer the data to one of the other telescopes. So you, you can think about using, you know, an optical, like a laser in satellite link, something like that. Um, perhaps that someday that would be that'd be feasible. Um, it's definitely a fascinating idea because if you correlate on board, you massively reduce the data that has to come down to the Earth. So you can imagine being much further away from the Earth using an inter-satellite link and then just sending down, you know, the much smaller final products that we want to see. Um, rather than the full data set, which most of it will be discarded because we're searching for this, and we're searching for these interferences in, in massive amounts of data. But that's an interesting idea. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. Like, you look at, for example, like the Vera Rubin telescope, they're going to be processing so much of the sky that they're going to be doing a lot of the first analysis just in real time. They're mm -hmm. just going to, as things are blasting through the pipeline, they're going to be pulling interesting scientific nuggets out of it and saying, oh, we found a supernova. Oh, we found an <laughs> asteroid. You know, yeah. someone may want to look at this. And you can see there's this tension and this balance between do we bring everything home or do we figure out a way to get yeah. these telescopes to do some of the hard work remotely so that you can just send the results home and then you're less bandwidth constrained and now you can put interesting telescopes much farther away from earth to do more mm. interesting tasks and at the end of the day all we want are the science results we don't yeah you know but now you've got to fly a cluster of nvidia h100s on your spacecraft and i'm yeah. not sure they're space hardened yet no exactly yeah and the, and, the, and again going back to data rate and you know often the, the boring side of things but the realities of what you need to be able to achieve um you know the data rate you need to get on a laser and satellite link to transfer that much data to the other satellite would be immense um yeah so whether you can do it in real time or you can do it you know after observation and do it slowly that's probably more realistic but again keeping it all in orbit and then downloading downloading the you know the data product later that would be beneficial and that's probably like a, a stretch goal a, a, a dream goal for, for a system yeah. like this there's definitely a few levels of complexity before that that we that are more achievable in the short term now you know we've been talking about the event horizon telescope but the big telescope that's coming online shortly is the square kilometer array in mm. australia and south africa 
would you be in the same wavelength regime as that telescope and be able to work together with it? That's a good question. Because as far as I'm aware, the, the SKA, SKA is not part of the EHT um, array as of yet. So I, I don't it's know. Just like on the wrong side of the Earth? Yeah, they, I wonder if that's. Is it nighttime when. Uh, uh, you know, is it, a, like you said, a, 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 a positional problem or a, or a frequency problem? I'll have to look mm-hmm. into the frequency the SKA is observing at. I mean, I know um, that like the two sites are slightly different chosen wavelength re- regimes. But mm-hmm. I wonder if that's off from what the the HT is doing. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it probably is just just for the fact that they're not currently involved in, in the next generation EHT, yeah. you know, the current EHT. But perhaps it's something that we looked into in the future because the comp- contribution of such a large collecting area essentially is what the EHT wants from ground telescopes now is you know getting larger and larger because it's, it's a sensitivity problem I discussed before. So we we need to collect over a massive area to. Um, increase the sensitivity of our detections. Um, so it's, yeah, I, w- I wonder where that will go in the future. Perhaps that will be a future addition to the HT. What could we learn from getting that image of the photon mm. Like, Yeah, so this is this is a, this is a good question because I, I've had lots of friends who, you know, obviously I very excitedly showed this picture around when it was first produced and you know, it was amazing to me and amazing to lots of other people as well. But a lot of other people say it's a blurry photograph. Um, as cool as it is, it's, it's a fairly blurry photograph. But the, the science that can be done with even that EHT image is is, is immense. Um, so the, the first thing that they, they managed to do um, is they can use they, they can use the the generated image and compare that to a range of, of models we have on the Earth. And from that, in almost a comparison way, to infer a lot of characteristics of the black hole. So they, can, they came up with a much more accurate mass estimation of, of the M87 star black hole than we've ever had before. And one, one that was independent of, of other measurements, like auxiliary measurements that were required when those first mass estimations were made. Um, so that's one interesting piece of information we can gather from that first image. Um, and the other is just general tests of um, general relativity. So consistency tests of general relativity. So there's, there is still some debate as to whether general relativity holds up in the extreme gravitational environment around a black hole and whether that's still a you know a useful metric to describe the behavior of matter around a black hole and the eht image and and things we're going to try and get to in the future um would allow tests of that nature to be um to be conducted and, and they have done some already with the eht image um and you know, understanding gravity in, in that strong gravity environment is just essential to our overall understanding of, of how gravity works, which is a massive question in physics and one that is particularly fascinating for black holes because obviously we have this, you know, we have this, um, you know, everyone knows this, this, this gap we have between the quantum mechanics world of physics and the, and the general relativity and they're trying to merge those two, two regions and black holes are really where those two things come into, those two, those two worlds collide, you know, with the singularity at the center and the huge gravitational environment. So learning anything, anything we can about gravity is, 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 is the, is the major aim of getting these, of these photos. Um, and there are wider, there are wider applications. Um, if we can understand why the mass of black holes are what they are, we can come to lots of conclusions about how galaxies form. So the supermassive black holes we've been observing so far, so it's M87 star, and Sagittarius A star. Now these are two, the two supermassive black holes that have the largest size when we view, when we view them from the Earth. Um, they're essentially our biggest targets, hence why we go for them. It's as simple as that. Um, they are both at the center of their respective galaxies. Sagittarius A star is the center of our own galaxy. It's our own supermassive black hole. Um, and the, the question as to how they get there or, or why galaxies form around them is, is completely, you know, is, is unknown and, and something that still needs resolving. So 
the, the, the implications of just that image are a lot wider than just understanding black holes. It's understanding how the whole structure of galaxies form. Um, and probing the photon rings does provide us even more than what the EHD right. can currently do. So it's 20 years from now. The twin space-based event horizon <laughs> telescopes have are flying in space. Maybe they're they're at the L2 point, maybe they're at the L4, L5 point, and they have been recording their images and astronomers have crunched the data and they've got the picture. They've got the version, you know, the photon ring telescope. <laughs> when we're looking at the picture, what would we be seeing? Yeah. So if we could if we could if we could image with enough resolution and enough coverage of the source to actually generate an image where we had the photon rings, then we would see the accretion disk in far more detail. We would see the matter going into the accretion disk. There's some fantastic simulations that people can see in papers where we can see the spirals of the matter going into the accretion disk. Um, and we would begin to see the rings forming within that. Um, and, and the power of that, if, if we if we could probe the the first and second order rings, and even further, you know, if you're talking about a dream telescope, um, the, the, by, by probing, the, the EHD can't currently probe the rings. If we could probe the photon rings, we can do what I've just said before. So general relativity tests, mass estimations, but to a whole other degree um, compared to what the EHD can perform. So the interesting thing about the photon rings is, whereas the EHD is looking at the accretion disk, as I, as I said before, so that blow is the accretion disk, that's massively dependent on the sort of physical processes within the disk and, and less so, well, not less so, but it's massively influenced by that. And therefore any measurements we want to make of the sort of gravity effect is corrupted by that by that interaction. The, the photon rings, the higher order you go, the less they're influenced by all the friction and the heat and the energy in that accretion disk. They're, they're more dependent just on the gravitational properties of the field. Um, so if we get those really high photon ring orders, we could detect those and probe those rings and, and, and estimate their diameters and then all sorts of characteristics about them. We can have these completely independent tests of general relativity that aren't corrupted in the same way as the EHT EHT ones are, um, and that would allow us to verify the kinds of black hole we're observing, you know, which parts of general relativity hold up in these fields, and what kind of black holes feasibly occur in the real universe. Um, and then if we're talking about having unbelievable resolution, we're finally going beyond just M87 star and Sagittarius A star. We can now look at all the other black holes. Right. Well, that was my next question, right? Was that you, like, only these two black holes are within the limits of what we can see, mm. and all of the others are too small, too dim, too far. But yeah. suddenly, so how many do you get? Like, if this comes online, how many just event horizon telescope pictures can you take? Yes, yeah, it's good, good question. So the black holes are surprisingly common in the universe. Um, despite Einstein's initial reticence of them even existing. It, we, we, our estimations now are closer to something like 10 million to a billion of them existing in the Milky Way alone. Small black holes, um, which we think can form when something of the mass, maybe two to three times the mass of our sun, uh, dies at the end of its life, you know, collapses at the end of its life. Now, supermassive black holes are another thing altogether. Um, supermassive black holes, we're looking at masses of around... You know, 0.1 million to 10 billion times more massive than our sun. So these are an entirely different animal, so to speak. Um, and yeah, like I said, the reason we look at M87 star and Sagittarius A star is they're either so massive that they're big when we look at them or they're much closer. So Sagittarius A star is not very big compared to M87, but it's much closer to us because it's in our galaxy. M87 star is an absolute monster. So it's about 6 billion times more massive than our sun. So even though it's in another galaxy, it's just so massive we can see it. Yeah. They both have a horizon on the same scale of resolution that we can we can achieve with the HT currently. 
If we can go an order of magnitude lower than that, um, I, I don't know if anyone's done this work as of yet as to what you know, what's, what, what survey of black holes can we perform with, with different resolutions. It might be an interesting piece of work. Um, but I, I imagine it, it, it jumps hugely. Um, yeah, hundreds, thousands of black yeah, holes. Yeah, and it's not even just a case of getting the event horizon. It's, you know, further away from black hole and the way we first saw them was seeing these big jets that the black holes produce this um these these massive spikes of magnetic field and, and energy getting erupted into space so even if we couldn't get as close as the black hole in our images um just seeing that jet has you know massive implications in terms of the science yeah. you can do on that so cool ben what are you obsessed with right now what am i obsessed with so i'm a spacecraft systems engineer so I'm not a physicist. I, I design and build satellites. That's that's my work. I'm in the I'm in the practical world of of, of this of this topic. Um, but I'm yeah I'm obsessed with, with with getting one of these systems accepted by a large space agency or by someone. Um, getting it launched and, and actually operating that. You know whether it's in conjunction with the HT or it's an actual space based purely space based system. I'd love to see you know in, in the next 10, 20 years or perhaps even shorter time scale if we're if we're lucky. Um, a high resolution image of of one of these black holes. I think that would be fantastic. I think just the effect that that had on the general population, you know, the, the interest that sparked that picture. I think black holes get everyone's attention eventually. They, you know, everyone realizes, oh, that's very interesting. And I think um, just increasing that clarity of that image, you'd get more and more people engaged in, in in the topic. So for me, that's that's a big goal. I'd love to see those images get more and more fine fine detail as time as time goes on. I can't wait to see that first picture. From space. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. I mean, a space, like a radio space telescope. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to give you some concluding thoughts in a second, as well as some resources that you can check out some more stuff. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. A special thanks to David Richards, Mark Anstis, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shiplin, George, Andrew Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level and all of our other supporters on Patreon. We really went into the details about what it's going to take to put a spacecraft that can form part of the Event Horizon Telescope. And it really shows you the different trade-offs that engineers have to think about when they're forming these space mission concepts. It's not just about how big of a telescope, it's where do you put it? And how do you unfold it? And how do you get it into position? And what are the environmental issues that you have to think about for different places in space? And then getting the data home. You want your spacecraft close to home, but you want them far enough away that they can do their job. And there's all of these trade-offs that are involved that make this so complicated, especially when you're thinking about something that's going to be having to record and transmit an enormous amount of data. And I kind of don't envy Ben for all of the trade-offs and all of the variables that he's going to have to account for. And yet, interferometers, like I just keep coming back to this theme, we need a space-based interferometer to take astronomy to the next level. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, to go to the wavelengths of light that are most forgiving. And so for me, it really feels like it's a, it makes a lot of sense to both test out a radio interferometer in space, as well as starting to put more intelligence, more compute power 
onto the telescope, the, the mission itself, to be able to ha offload a lot of that difficult work where it's being needed and then send the results home. So there's like a lot of interesting technical risk challenges and milestones that could be overcome by taking on a mission like this. Now, if you want to follow this thought process a little further, I've got a couple of other videos that I've done. So one is talking about building a far infrared space interferometer. And then another interview that I did about building a giant space interferometer and some of the other values that you can get from that. So I'm obsessed about space interferometers. I hope you are too. And so there's more videos you can check out. All right, we'll see you next time.